Hello, and welcome to Shank Talks Bunhofer, a podcast largely about Dietrich Bunhofer, his life, and his times. But more broadly than that, we often discuss issues that either are introduced to us in the writings and reflections by Dietrich Bonhoeffer or about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and then uh, questions and subjects that I think, or that the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, the sponsor of this podcast, uh, believes Bonhoeffer may have been interested in had he lived into our times. Today, we're going to talk about a question that factored very largely into Bonhoeffer's reflections on Christian ethics, morality, discipleship, and his concept of concrete action on behalf of others, responsible action. And that, of course, is the question of violence, whether Christians in particular, but ethical persons in general, can embrace violence, whether violence is ever the answer or can ever be an answer to a human exigency of some kind. And I'm going to do this through a conversation with someone who's written a book about Christians and violence. And a name that may be familiar to you, Ron Sider, who is a venerable personality in the evangelical world. He's of Brethren Mennonite extraction, and you probably know what I'm hinting at there. He is a pacifist. This is an individual who has embraced an ethic of pacifism, of nonviolence, in every possible way, and uh, he has espoused that virtually all of his life. Bonhoeffer uh, was at times described as a pacifist, kept company with pacifists, and seemed to, uh, to reflect a pacifistic ethic. But of course, in the end, we know that he identified with, or at least most people believe, that he identified with a violent plan to overthrow the regime of Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich in Germany, which included an assassination plot, at least one, against the head of state. So this is a very complex question in discussions about Bonhoeffer. But in this conversation with Ron Sider, I think it's quite clear on his position. In fact, if it isn't from our discussion that you're about to hear, it certainly uh, is indicated in his most recent title. He's a prolific author, Ron Sider is, and he's out with a new book, if Jesus is Lord, loving our enemies in an age of violence. And that's what you'll hear me talking to Dr. Sider about. To give him a more formal introduction, Ronald J. Sider, PhD, 
is senior or actually recently retired senior distinguished professor of theology, holistic ministry, and public policy at Palmer Seminary at Eastern University. He is the publisher of PRISM and corresponding editor for Christianity Today. He serves as president of Evangelicals for Social Action and has published more than 30 books. I had the chance of sitting down with Ron Sider and his wife, Arbutus, a family therapist at their home north of Philadelphia. And after dinner, a very relaxing, lovely meal together in true Mennonite style, I sat with Ron in his living room and we had this conversation about his new book, If Jesus is Lord, Loving Our Enemies in an Age of Violence. Come on into the home of the Ciders and join us in the conversation. Ron Cider, first of all, it's a pleasure to sit with you. Uh, there have been periods in my life when I came close to venerating you, but uh, I have always admired you. Uh, and I go back to rich Christians. Uh, and uh, and its important impact on me and on so many of my generation. Now you have a new title out, If Jesus is Lord, Loving Our Enemies in an Age of Violence. Can we start by talking about the concept of lordship? When you entitle this book, If Jesus is Lord, there's a lot of questions that attend to that, including what does it mean to make Jesus Lord? How would you answer that question? Well, when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek uh, for the Septuagint, and when they came to the word um, Yahweh, the word for the one God, they translated it Kurias, Lord. Uh, and that's the title that Jewish Christians, soon after his resurrection, after Jesus' resurrection, um, started using about Jesus. Jesus is God. Uh, that's an incredible statement, utterly incredible for Saul of Tarsus, <laughs> rabbinically trained, um, brilliant Jewish scholar. Uh, but the early church just confessed that uh, the, the man from Nazareth, Jesus, was Messiah uh, and Lord. Um, uh, and that meant that they needed to submit every corner of their lives to him. Uh, it meant that, you know, Jesus' final instruction uh, in Matthew is to go everywhere uh, and uh, make disciples, lead people to faith, and the second half was teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Um, if you understand Jesus' gospel of the kingdom, you understand that Jesus 
is saying that the messianic time when everything is going to be set right has now broken into history. Uh, it started. It's not yet here in its fullness. That'll happen when I return. But the messianic time has started and now my disciples should live the way that I teach um, is the way God wants us to live in the kingdom. And so if you think that Jesus is not just a great prophet uh, and not just a wise ethicist, but believe with the church over the 2,000 years of our history that he is God in the flesh, then it simply will not do to say, Jesus, yeah, you said that, but sorry, it doesn't work in our world. Uh, uh, I think we'll have to disagree with you. So the, the crucial question for any issue uh, in the Christian life is, what does Jesus in the scriptures tell us? Uh, and if he is Lord, then it seems to me genuine Christians submit to what he teaches. Bonhoeffer, of course, would often use uh, the, the, the term command mm -hmm. of God mm -hmm. and ask the question, what is the command? Mm -hmm. um, we talk about the commandments. Right. And the two great commandments, to love God, to love your neighbor as yourself, that these are, in fact, uh, these, are, these aren't optional things. Mm -hmm. right. They are orders. They are directives. Right. They are mandates. Right. He would use the term mandate as well. Um, is, it, is it ever possible for the Christian to separate the, the, the person of Christ his salvific work uh, on our behalf and his commands. In other words, kind of separate the two and say, well, I'll, I'll benefit from this now. Later on, I'll, I'll get to that command yeah. and see what I do with that. Is it even possible to do that? Well, uh, God's people try to do it all the time, uh, you know, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, again and again, you see uh, the people wanting to have a right relationship with God uh, and uh, not treat the neighbor uh, the way God says they should. I mean, the prophets uh, denounce uh, the people of Israel for, uh, you know, worshiping God and then oppressing uh, their fellow, uh, uh, fellow Jew. Uh, and I think one sees it all through history. We'd like to have a right relationship with God and not have it affect how we treat our, our neighbors. But, uh, I mean, Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus tells parable after parable uh, um, about uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we can't um, be pleasing to God and not treat our neighbor the way God says we're supposed to do it. So it's, it's, it's fundamentally unbiblical to um, try to have a right relationship with God and not live the way uh, Jesus in the scriptures tells us to live. But of course, sinful Christians try to do it all the time. I think immediately, of course, of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, sometimes entitled Nachfogel and uh, life together. Mm -hmm. And the, the question of what is discipleship? And in, in this new work, 
Uh, and thank you for being so prolific. You've fed us with your work for generations, for decades. And, uh, and I'm still learning from it. And I got a lot out of this wonderful theological treatment on loving our enemies in an age of violence. So what is the nexus between lordship and enemies and violence? How are those things brought in connection with each other? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I want to say, and I say this very early in the book, is that I understand in my heart and in my head the just war tradition. Uh, at its best, uh, Christians are saying that reluctantly, under certain circumstances, we have to kill for the sake of justice and peace. Uh, and I get it. I mean, Hitler's and Stalin's and ISIS uh, rampaged through history, uh, doing terrible things, and it looks like the only way to stop them is to kill them. Uh, but my starting point as a Christian is that Jesus is my Lord, uh, and so I have to ask, what does Jesus tell us about how we treat enemies? And uh, that's what the book is about. Um, uh, I say that um, if you're a Christian, uh, if you think Jesus is Lord, uh, then the first and most important question about um, pacifism and just war is what did Jesus teach us? Uh, and I, I, I set the setting you know, in Jesus' time, a time when the Jewish people were expecting a military Messiah who would drive out the Romans. Um, we know from Josephus, the great uh, Jewish historian of, of that first century, that there were many messianic movements and many um, uh, revolutionaries who rose up and tried to rebel against Rome. Um, uh, they were crucified. Uh, the Romans put them down every time. Eventually it led to the Jewish war in 66 to 70, which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's in a context uh, where there was a expectation of a messianic military conqueror uh, and Jewish revolutionaries who were sometimes claiming to be messiahs um, and uh, rising up in rebellion against Rome, uh, Jesus comes along and says, I'm the messiah. But he pretty clearly has a different understanding of messiah. He rides into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Um, and in Matthew 5, he says that... Um, we're supposed to love our enemies. Uh, and when you look at uh, the setting, uh, widespread call for revolutionary violence uh, against the Romans, um, Jesus says, uh, not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. That's the heart of Middle Eastern jurisprudence. Um, uh, Jesus says, no. Uh, 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 don't resist evil violently. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean be passive. It means don't resist evil violently. Even carry the baggage of the Roman soldier. They had the legal right to demand that um, the Jewish colonists, uh, colonials, would carry it a mile. But they couldn't insist on it being carried two miles. Jesus says, carry it a second mile. He, he's talking about how you treat the, the vicious, violent, um, oppressive, uh, Roman conquerors. Um, so it seems to me that Jesus is 
clearly saying that his messianic kingdom way is a way of loving enemies, not killing them. Uh, and, and you make an interesting point that this doesn't equate to sort of self-flagellation, self-abnegation. Um, we're not laying down as a rug for someone to simply walk over. Um, can, can you bring that out a, a little yeah. bit? You, you actually say that this is a way well, of doing something else. Yeah. The NIV translation, I think, is uh, don't resist evil. Um, but if you look carefully at what that Greek word means, it's used in the Old Testament, uh, of course, in the Greek translation, uh, and it means don't resist violently. Uh, in most of the cases, or many, many of the cases, in both Josephus and the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Greek, uh, Greek Hebrew Bible, um, that ver word means resist violently. Jesus resisted evil. He denounced the Pharisees. He marched into the temple and overturned the tables. He didn't whip people uh, or kill them, but he certainly reacted vigorously to evil. And even at the trial, um, uh, you know, uh, when he gets slapped on the cheek, he doesn't say, oh, that's nice, uh, I don't mind. He said, if I did something wrong, tell me what it is. But if not, you know, why did you do that? Uh, he resisted in a nonviolent way. So I think the, the way of following Jesus in our world so full of injustice and violence is to resist nonviolently in any kind of situation. I mean, Gandhi said this. Gandhi said, if the only two choices are to do nothing and not protect the neighbor when he's being oppressed or kill, then of course we kill. But we always have a third choice. We have the nonviolent action choice. And in fact, in the last 50 years, we have again and again and again seen how successful nonviolence is. Um, you know, Gandhi, Dr. King changed American history with nonviolence, um, uh, the revolution of the candles in East Germany, the uh, solidarity in Poland resisted and won, defeated communist dictators um, through nonviolence. Um, uh, and the stories go on and on. I have a whole book called Nonviolent Action uh, that talks about those stories uh, and makes the point that there's always a nonviolent option. In fact, some scholars uh, did a book comparing uh, about 300 of them, of the both violent and nonviolent campaigns against injustice and oppression in the last hundred or so years. And they discovered that the nonviolent campaigns were about twice as likely to succeed as the violent campaigns. Um, so I'm not saying that nonviolence always works. Um, you know, nonviolent people will get killed, but war isn't obvious, obviously successful. At least uh, it involves a lot of people getting killed. So there is always that third alternative uh, to act nonviolently. And I think that's what Jesus' example um, and Jesus' teaching leads us to. You know, as you say that, it occurs to me, and I'm, I'm not... I'm not an expert in this field, uh, but it would be interesting, and I'm going to look at the data. Because when I think about revolutionary movements that were very violent and did succeed to overturn the status quo and bring in uh, a new regime, often 
they end up even more violent than what, or at least as violent, uh, or more violent than what they vanquished. And but in nonviolent movements, you see the diametric opposite to that, or yeah. at least casually. Yeah. Uh, 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 my observation would indicate something like that. So that's really worth more investigation. And, and well, just one little historical fact. Sure. You know, the Gandhi and, and the Indian movement used nonviolence. Um, and I, I think about, um, I don't have the exact figures in my head, but uh, about one out of, I think, 400,000 Indians died. In Algeria, in their fight for independence against France, um, one out of 10 Algerians died in a violent campaign. Mm. So there's, there's clear evidence um, that, at least in times, nonviolence uh, succeeds and it involves a lot less death. Mm. Mm. But until the Christian church as a whole dares to really live uh, nonviolence as a response to a very obvious evil and injustice and wickedness in the world, um, we won't have empirical evidence that in fact it would frequently work. Well, what, what really captured me in the early pages of your work here, if Jesus is Lord, loving our enemies in an age of violence, and after reading it, I should remember who published it, it's Baker, academic. Right. Right. So Baker, academic. Um, in, in the first few pages was this context that you gave us. Because I think we often imagine that Jesus spoke these words, challenging us to live nonviolently in a sort of idyllic, peaceful um, environment where he really wasn't in touch with reality. And yet, you remind us that it was an extremely violent period in history. And the, the literal environment was permeated with violence, and there were very violent movements. In Sepphoris, uh, very close to Nazareth um, in Galilee, uh, there was a major rebellion, uh, and the Romans crucified, I think, 2,000 people, uh, rebels against them. So there was violence all around. Yeah, so this was ISIS on steroids. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's almost unimaginable. It's, it's almost unthinkable, the scale of that kind of violence. One could argue that we are living in a very violent period now, or at least there, there is a, an inducement to violence. There's growing tension in the world. There's certainly plenty of open warfare and terrorist uh, activity and people suffering and dying of violence. One could argue that in our own country, with the episodes of uh, gun violence, whether it's one victim or four or 40 or more, mm -hmm. Uh, that our own culture is is saturated with violence, and it, so in our own time, what is what is the greatest challenge facing the Christian when considering the model and uh, commandment of Christ? 
what 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 do we have to sit with ourselves? I mean, some would say, Ron Sider, you know, you're being unrealistic. You're 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 this is this is um, fantasy. We live in a violent world. We have to meet violence with violence, or or we will be uh, 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 finished. How does the Christian manage that temptation? Yeah, well, my first and most important response is to say that if Jesus is Lord, the first question dare not be, um, will this be easy uh, or will I be safe and comfortable? The first question is, if, if Jesus is Lord and, you know, first chapter of Revelation says he's now ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, he, he's now Lord of all things. If, if that's who he is, God in the flesh, then it, it's simply unbiblical, it's heretical, finally, to say, yeah, sorry Jesus, but it doesn't work in this wicked world. Um, people don't usually say, well, uh, no, I won't, I won't go there. But if Jesus is Lord, we've got to follow him. That's, that's the most basic thing. Or we're simply not being finally Christian. Um, but then I want to say secondly that, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that nonviolence works. Um, there's evidence that we can make some progress in history, we used to settle disputes between gentlemen by dueling. You know, they would each have pistols and they would back, walk back a few yards and turn around and, and settle a dispute. We settled in the courts. It isn't really loving. It isn't always just, but it's, it's a nonviolent uh, solution. Um, a democratic process uh, is a way of resolving political disagreements, um, not through revolution, uh, but through uh, free speech um, and a free press um, and, a, and a free vote. Um, so it's not true that everything is going down the tubes, although there's certainly a threat um, even to our democracy um, uh, around the world. There's, there are threats to democracy. Uh, even here, there are threats. But um, uh, I think that Again and again, nonviolent solutions work, just in, in the terms of criminal justice. Uh, in the last 30 or so years, um, nonviolent um, offender reconciliation programs have emerged where people get the person who committed a crime against someone and the victim uh, together um, over a, a careful process. You don't just immediately dump them together, but you have them uh, together, and the uh, uh, and the um, uh, the guilty person tries to do things to make it right. Um, that's uh, become strong and um, widely uh, uh, embraced. Not totally, but um, there are just lots of ways that um, that sort of approach, which I think is consistent with Jesus' call to love our enemies, uh, that is in fact works. Uh, you know, I, I did ministry with elected and appointed officials for three decades in Washington, D.C., and 
uh, that included members of Congress. And very often people would ask me in those years, has it ever been this bad? I mean, we're so divided and, you know, things are so rancorous. And do you think it's ever been this bad? Well, first of all, we had a civil war in this country. But I often reminded them of, of an episode in the chamber of the United States Senate when a member of the House of Representatives marched over and nearly beat to death a U.S. Senator on the floor. Uh, I want to put the year as uh, 1850s. I can't remember whether it was before or after the war, but in any case, it happened. And uh, and with the the man who committed the assault, the near-fatal assault, uh, got away with it with impunity. Hmm. Uh, so when you suggest that the democratic process, including with free exchange of ideas and debate, public debate of ideas before a vote takes place, I, I never really thought of that as a nonviolent expression of change and sometimes radical change, mm-hmm. but indeed it is. Yeah. Which gets me to a final question. Uh, and that is, of course, you, you can't talk Bonhoeffer without talking about that one episode uh, in his amazing life and, and leadership career uh, in the church in Germany when he did embrace a violent act, or at least we think he did. If you read between the lines, if you look at the associations that he had, um, And Bonhoeffer, of course, spoke of that in terms of sin and even personal failure and even risking his eternal salvation, uh, ultimately throwing himself on the mercy of God because he couldn't come up with a better solution. At least that's how some read ethics in between the lines. Um, Is there ever, in your estimation, ever a moment when a Christian in good conscience and with, with God's permission, can, can a Christian ever um, relate, uh, uh, rely on a violent act? Or is that always and in every instance impermissible? As I read Jesus, um, and I believe he's God in the flesh, and I believe he said that we're supposed to love our enemies, not kill them, um, I could never uh, take up arms to resist an evil person. Uh, I agree that Hitler is certainly an example of one of the worst people around. I often say, however, that if even a million German Christians had nonviolently resisted Hitler. Uh, I imagine, I can't prove this, it's hypothetical, but I imagine the German generals would have overthrown Hitler before he started killing the second two million German Christians. Uh, That's to say, I suspect widespread nonviolence would even have worked with Hitler. It certainly saved um, large numbers of Jews in Norway uh, and Denmark, where the 
population used nonviolence against their Nazi um, overlords. Um, so even in the worst of situations, uh, we won't know until large numbers of Christians dare to live out nonviolence um, how successful it will be. But I think the historical record uh, in the last 50 years suggests that it's far more successful than people realize. And regardless of whether or not in the short run it works or not, um, I believe Jesus is Lord and therefore I have to obey him. Well, it's certainly worth remembering that the several violent attempts uh, on Adolf Hitler's life through means of assassination failed, completely failed. Right. And for Bonhoeffer and others, it exacerbated their suffering and some, in many cases, led to their own deaths. So maybe if Bonhoeffer were in the room with us, uh, he might, he might uh, agree with you now. We don't know. We <laughs> don't know. But uh, if Jesus is Lord, loving our enemies in an age of violence, by Ronald J. Sider, uh, Baker Academic is really worth the read. And if anything, if, if nothing else, I should say, will stimulate some really necessary questions for all of us to ask of ourselves, of our Christian community, of our witness in the world. Thank you, Ron Sider, for helping uh, to form uh, better disciples. And thank you, Rob, for um, your Bonhoeffer Institute and your uh, doing the same thing. Well, we hope to have more of your involvement uh, in the days ahead. I know you've got a lot left in you. Can't wait for the autobiography that's <laughs> simmering uh, when, we'll when you publish it. All right, folks. Uh, Get a hold of If Jesus is Lord, Loving Our Enemies in an Age of Violence. If you happen to use Amazon, remember to use smile.amazon when you buy it. And that way you help the future of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. Choose the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute as your charity. Thanks for listening and thanks, Ron Sider. Thanks, Rob. <laughs>